your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural pitfalls and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters Podcast on International Business. We help you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences, helping you develop your cultural competence. Good morning, good evening, uh, good afternoon, of course, as well. Welcome to the Culture Matters podcast, where we have such a unique guest. This is, I mean, we have all unique guests, but this is really exceptionally unique. I'm very happy to have him on the show. His name is Paul McAlinden. And I hope I got the pronunciation right. I practiced really hard to get this right. And it's really special. It's really worth listening to the interview all the way. It's a longer than normal interview. Uh, But you need to know, of course, who the guest is. Well, his name is Paul McAlinden, and he is an internationally renowned conductor and author of the book Upbeat, the story of the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq. He led the orchestra from 2008 until 2014 in Iraq, France, Germany and Britain, solving enormous hurdles of culture, language and education along the way. The National Youth Orchestra of Iraq is by far the most challenging and rich intercultural experience of his career. Upbeat is out on August 18, 2016. That's the introduction, that's the official part, but the interview is a a lot better than this introduction as I've done it. So make sure you listen. It's time for this week's guest at the Culture Matters podcast. Here's your host, Chris Smith. Paul, good morning. How good are morning you? Good morning to you, Chris. How are you? I'm, I'm actually very well. Not many people ask that. I'm doing really <laughs> well. It's a sunny day out there. Um, so that's uh, it's actually um, a day to go out, even though it's uh, it's February, early February. So it, it, looks, it could feel like a spring day, at least by the looks of it. And yourself, where are you? Uh, right now, I'm in Inverness, which is in the north of Scotland, of course. Yes. Um, and I've moved back to Scotland, and I'm delighted to be here because I need a sense of home. Uh, home is a big theme for a lot of people who travel globally around the world. And as a conductor, I've decided to take the plunge at the age of 47 and reroute myself back here. Okay. Um, Inverness, for those of you that might not know, that's in the north of Scotland. And it is the start of the... It's very close to the Great Glen, which also houses Loch Ness, I think. Absolutely. And the uh, monster. Yeah, we we don't exactly have spectacular scenery right now. We have a lot of snow around Aviemore, which is great skiing country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I expect over the next few months, Scotland will blossom and bloom. Okay, that's, that's really nice. Years ago, I actually walked the Great Glen from Inverness to Fort William. Mm-hmm. It, it's quite eerie to, to walk n- like next to Loch Ness and then imagine that this is what is it 100 200 meters deep or something and then and then it, it's a fairly deep loch and we actually think it's deeper where Messi of course and her family live mm. um, deeper than, than most people actually reckon yeah yeah we didn't see the monster although I have met people that actually know of people that have seen the monster which is I think that's how, <laughs> how, how the legend sort of lives on like that. It's kind of a, a second second place removed. Your third place is three places removed from Nessie on yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah, <laughs> that's really funny. You have to apologize, um, the occasional coughing, Paul, because I have a horrible cold and sometimes it gets in the way. Typically, uh, I notice that when I uh, when I start talking. So, um, leave the talking to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, um, where you come from, where are you now? You told us that you're Inverness. And what's your cultural frame of reference? 
Oh, well, my cultural frame of reference is that I'm culturally Scottish. My background, uh-huh. and the name Macalinden is, in fact, an Irish name. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we were famous in the 16th century in country Antrim for stealing sheep. Um, but, of course, stealing sheep and being famous for that means that you got caught yeah. Uh, because people knew who had done it, and most of us got hanged. So the name Magoylafinian, which is what we were originally called, yeah. uh, spread throughout the whole of the world as those who escaped emigrated, and there are now multiple spellings of the name Macalinden. Hmm. Okay, so you have quite a rich um, background then. Well, quite a, quite a, a I mean, tawdry background. That is. Yes. Um, but, but nevertheless, I, I, try, I try to pride myself on the fact that I've given a little bit of credibility and fame to quite uh, an unknown name. We did not, unlike many Irish, go forth and multiply terribly well. Mm. Um, so I'm quite chuffed that I've got a book coming out and that I'm a conductor and that the name Macalinden is around a little bit more than it normally would be. Okay, that's nice. We'll talk about the book and we'll talk about uh, the fact that you're a, um, a conductor as well. And what is your cultural frame of reference? In other words, where, which countries have you lived, worked, uh, stuff like that? I get you. Well, as a conductor, I started my life here in Scotland, um, working with various voluntary sector orchestras, professional contemporary music ensembles, and so culturally identify myself very strongly as a Scot. Mm-hmm. But of course, I grew up in Britain, and I studied always in England, mm-hmm. and sometimes in America. Um, before uh, entering the big world to try and build a conducting career. Um, In 2000, I moved to Germany. Uh And the reason for that was that I wanted to completely recontextualize my my cultural frame of reference. Um, I wanted to be closer to a country that was deeply embroiled and in fact had grown the classical music tradition by itself. It was still the hub. Mm -hmm. Um, where practically every town had its own orchestra and opera house. Yeah. Um, And I wanted to meet different people, learn German, and do different things, which for me led to uh, coaching opera singers, Mm -hmm. conducting opera, conducting a lot of youth orchestras, and building an international career. I based myself in Cologne, which is a fabulous city, not just in itself, but Terrific transport links. Quite different from Scotland, I could get to any corner of Europe within an hour. And uh, it it was that accessibility and that repositioning of myself near phenomenal transport possibilities that took me to Finland, it took me to America, it took me to Armenia, it took me to New Zealand on various bits of work, as well as, of course, conducting in Germany. So I really um, wanted to push my career out and become more international. And, of course, doing that, I became much more fascinated in the issue of culture. Yes. Because conducting an Armenian orchestra is a quite different experience, a leadership experience, mm-hmm. from conducting a New Zealand or a Finnish orchestra. How is that different then? What is the, Music is music, isn't it? Absolutely. The, the end result is music. And yes. this is why we can jump in for three or four days into a foreign culture and do our job. Yeah. Because classical music is a very disciplined and very tightly regulated framework that everybody in the world can work in. Yes. But nevertheless, there are huge cultural differences. So, for example, in Finland, which is the only country in the world yeah. that has orchestral life in its constitution... Um, hmm. There was a huge obsession with developing and being modern and being innovative, mm-hmm. whereas in Armenia, it was the exact opposite. Uh, they hated new music 
And they, I found it very difficult because I was promoting Armenian composers in Armenia and yeah. nobody wanted this. What, so uh, what, what kind of music was, is, is, cause I think every country, every culture has music. And mm -hmm. so, so what, what is, or what's, what's the going kind of music in Armenia, Armenia then? Well, they have a very rich, very rich con uh, tradition indeed. In fact, their church, the Armenian Apostolic Church, was mm -hmm. the very first Christian church ever founded in 301 AD. And they developed a system of singing from that tradition, which is anciently rooted in sharakans, uh, with its own tuning and notation system. Uh, and it's a very profound vocal tradition. And from those deep roots come very, very stimulating and beautiful uh, musical traditions. Famous composers would include um, Aram Katachurian, Uh, with his Spartacus suite, mm -hmm. for example, and uh, Aratunian with his trumpet concerto. Uh, but of course, there are many Armenian composers, and of course, there's a huge Armenian diaspora. Mm -hmm. Diaspora plays a huge part in Armenian culture, because that country, being less than two million people, and basically on the floor economically, mm -hmm. is supported to the tune of several billion dollars a year by rich diaspora members all around the world, particularly in Los Angeles. Yeah. So we had this whole microcosm of Armenians who were almost, you know, the country is 97% ethnic Armenian. Mm -hmm. um, so you have no diversity there yeah. at all. Yeah. It's about Armenia. And it's about be connecting to the diaspora so that this tiny little country can stay alive and keep its traditions alive. So tradition and authenticity, both genetically and musically, were very important to the Armenians. Okay, so that that all happened from your base in Cologne in Germany. Well, uh, I was based in Cologne, but I would fly to Armenia yeah. Yeah. to uh, to work with the orchestra. Between 2005 and 2008, I was a guest conductor. And because my particular interest in music was living composers, I tried to promote Armenian composers in Armenia. When I came to the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq, mm -hmm. which was a much more radical project in every sense, um, then I was basing myself mainly in Cologne and working... 50 weeks a year online in internet cafes uh, in order to, to, to deliver a two-week summer course right. in Iraq. Yeah, yeah and that, that sort of brought us together. Um, we, we met on Twitter, and yeah. still, I mean, even though Twitter is on, uh, on heavy fire from its investors, I think, but uh, still, I think it's a great medium to meet people. And that's what I love about this world, in a way, and that's what I particularly love about the job that I do. I get to meet such fantastic people that do such... Thinks that nobody, I mean, in, who thinks that somebody from Scotland goes to Iraq and sets up a, a, a youth uh, orchestra? How do you, what, what happened there? What happened is a very good question. Yeah. Um, what happened was on the 19th of October 2008, mm -hmm. uh, I was uh, back home in Scotland in Edinburgh looking after my father who'd come out of Scotland, yeah. uh, out, of, out of hospital, sorry. Yeah. And so... I was sitting in a pub, oh, my favorite pub in Edinburgh, eating fish and chips mm -hmm. with a pint of lager and flicking through a copy of the Glasgow Herald, which happened to be lying on the table next to me. Mm -hmm. And there I saw a headline on page 13, I think it was, saying, Iraqi teen seeks maestro for orchestra. And this Iraqi teen <clears throat> was a 17-year-old girl, a pianist in Baghdad, who wanted to start a National Youth Orchestra of Iraq. As you do in Iraq, in Baghdad, Baghdad if you're 17-year-old. That's and, extraordinary. Exactly. And directly after a war, which hadn't really properly finished. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about an extreme 
visionary uh, under operating under ridiculous circumstances. So this lady was called Zuhal Sultan, and Zuhal and I connected through Skype as we are connecting now. Yeah. And um, basically, with the help of, I mean, and a lot of help from the British Council. Uh, we set up the very first summer course of the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq in a northern town in the Kurdistan region called Suleymaniya mm-hmm. uh, in August of 2009. And, you know, from my point of view, it was an exciting, ambitious, crazy one-off project that we would try and see how it went. Yeah. I had a plan as to what I wanted to do, but, of course, entering a culture that I'd never experienced before meant I had to... Was, I was faced with a lot of improvisation and crisis management mm-hmm. in those two short weeks we had together. Um, but nevertheless, at the end of that, we pulled off a concert, which included Kurdish and Arab Iraqi music. It included Beethoven's Prometheus Overture and Haydn's Symphony 99. And after that, having seen and heard the difficulties and the challenges that these wonderful young people were facing on a daily basis just to make music in Iraq... Yeah. I kind of fell for them. I was my big softy came out, and I thought, actually, we can't let this die. We can't just stop after one. We've got to keep it going. Where did you I, give this first concert, then, uh, Paul? Where? Yes, it was in the. It's a building called the Talari Hunar, which is simply translated as the Palace of Arts. And this was in in in, in Kurdistan, in uh, in Iraq. In the Kurdistan region of Iraq, in the town of Suleymaniya, okay. which is a town of 715,000 people, the second largest town in the Kurdistan region, and also the major arts hub of the region. And and, and just to get to give me and the audience a bit of a feel on how that went. So you 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 pick up this newspaper, you read this this ad uh, requesting for a, a conductor. Yeah. You think you pack your bags, you go to Iraq, you go, you get your visa and stuff, whatever you need. Mm. And then you get these people together, they, they, they practice, you help them, and then who comes to a concert like that in, in a country like that? That's a very good question. Um, Suleymania already had and continues to have the Kurdistan String Orchestra. Mm-hmm. So for a number of years, they'd already had their own small orchestra, which is a very fine one. It had played in the Concert House in Vienna. Okay. Um, and uh, there is, in fact, a good string-playing tradition in Suleymania. The best string players in Iraq come from that town. And nobody really understands why. It just grew that way. Um, And we have to remember that one of the strongest things about the Kurds in Iraq is that they have phenomenal connections to their diaspora, coming back to the influence of diaspora on the culture. Um, And even though they were very geographically isolated... Uh Um, the fact that they, there was a strong Kurdish community in America, in France, in Sweden, that they could rely on for uh, people who, could, who had left uh-huh. the Kurdistan region and developed strong musical careers as classical violinists and composers would go back to the Kurdistan region to help. Yeah. So um, there were very – it's what I call the wisdom of the minority – Mm-hmm. Um, and minority power is a very important part of culture that I think an awful lot of people overlook. The Kurds knew that they were vulnerable. They still are, of course. Yeah. Um, and they knew that one way to survive was to uh, claw back expertise from their various diaspora sources and rebuild the strength of their culture. We've got to remember, it's only a matter of um, what – 
25 odd years ago yeah. that Saddam Hussein's genocide against the Kurds happened yeah. Yeah. Um, and the gas attacks at the Anfal campaign against um, Halabja and so on killed thousands of people. On top of that, uh, it's reckoned that in total about 310,000 Kurds were massacred by Saddam Hussein mm. and they're uncovering mass graves all the time. Um, still so, at this moment, still, to this still, date, yes. To this day, because there's a huge uh, well of wave of construction going on in Iraq. And as new buildings, foundations get dug, up comes another mass grave. Yeah. So it's quite gruesome and gory, and they're constantly reminded of this history. So the desire of the Kurdistan region of Iraq to protect itself culturally and to establish itself as an identity and eventually, in its eyes, an independent nation um, is very, very important. And the diaspora, again, plays a huge role in helping them to stabilize their culture. So this this country, Iraq, was um, in turmoil, to, I think to put it in a, in a sort of central version, came out of a war. You would think that music is not your priority at that moment. That's an excellent point, and it's been made to us before. Yeah. Um, the, the bottom line is very simple. It is, in fact, the responsibility of the Iraqi government, uh -huh. in collaboration with transnational NGOs and whatever else, to replace and rebuild the public services of water, waste collection, electricity. Yes. What we had was a 17-year-old girl in Baghdad mm -hmm. who had a vision for a national youth orchestra of Iraq. So she was basically empowering herself to do whatever she could within her capacity to rebuild a national youth orchestra or to build it from scratch. There wasn't one before. Mm -hmm. um, and she did whatever she had to, to pull in the expertise, mainly through myself and the British Council. Mm -hmm. uh, the British Council's job is to be the cultural and language teaching arm of the British Foreign Ministry. Yeah. Uh, so for them, this project was a godsend. Yes. Britain, Britain had participated in the war, and now Britain was very much responsible for helping Iraq rebuild itself. And this was the British Council's part of doing that. Yeah, and it's a good story. I mean, it's a positive story. Absolutely. Yeah. And what's very significant, which we haven't really touched on at all, is that, as we know, uh, there's a great deal of uh, press... Um, and media about the divisions in Iraq, about the Sunni-Shia divide, the gender difference between men and women and their rights, yes. uh, different, the difference between Kurds and Arabs. And of course, because of the uh, attacks of ISIL we, and the invasion of uh, the Islamic State, uh, we've, the very small minorities that nobody had ever heard of, like the Yazidis, yep. have come into focus. Yep. Um, so Iraq is a phenomenally diverse and also tragically divided country, mm -hmm. the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq was about bringing young people from across Iraq, regardless of their background and regardless of who they were, to play in an orchestra together. And this had never, ever been done before. So you had a group of, of youngsters in front of you who were Kurdish, who were Shiites, who were Sunnis, who, yeah. were, who were boys, who were girls. Yes. Young, young men and young women. Absolutely. How did that work? How did that gel? Or did it all, were there also situations or occasions where it didn't gel, where actually this, this, this cultural conflict came up as well there? I think in the first two summer courses, uh -huh. 2009, 2010, we definitely had conflicts to manage. Yeah. 
Um, but, you know, even though from my own personal point of view, it was quite difficult for me to be in Iraq, it was also very difficult for them to be together. And there were a number of reasons for this. First of all, there's the historic reason, the conflict between Sunni and Shia, the conflict between Kurdish and Arab. But the, and the, uh, the gender differences between male and female. Uh, so there was a tension there that people had to deal with, but there was also a desperate hunger, a real need to, uh, to learn music together mm-hmm. because nobody else was offering them good teaching. Yep. Nobody else was offering them good ensemble practice and nobody else was doing uh, the job of serving young musicians who are, after all, in the majority. Mm-hmm. We were talking about a country whose average age is 21. Amazing, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, it, it's clearly a country where the future belongs to its young people, but nobody was helping them. Mm-hmm. And so this ridiculous situation uh, required us to address the needs of these young people who had all auditioned for me on YouTube. So I, I, I had picked the best players in Iraq. Yeah. Regardless of their background, I just chose the people who I believed could get from the beginning to the end of the concert without falling apart. And, and what, what, what kind of people were there? Age, nationality, were they all Iraqis? Uh, and I know a Kurd doesn't call himself an Iraqi. He calls himself a Kurd, even though the the, the country Kurdistan doesn't doesn't exist per se. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what 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 was the make? How many people did you have? How many women? How many men or boys and girls? Can you remember that? Absolutely. I mean, from the very first orchestra was only thirty three players mm-hmm. and seven teachers and myself. The teachers were Europeans flown in by me, mm-hmm. um, and uh, of that, a quarter of the orchestra was female. Mm-hmm. And that quarter, that 25% female, held throughout all our summer courses. Okay. Um, at the beginning, there were more Arabs than Kurds. Mm-hmm. In our last summer course in 2013, in France, there were more Kurds than Arabs. And there are very complicated reasons for why that was, but mm-hmm. we can address that later if you like. Um, and also there were Assyrians, there were Turkmen's, um, and in terms of Sunni and Shia, to be absolutely honest with you, if you're a classical musician in Iraq, you're already a minority. <laughs> you've, you've self-selected minority status. So everybody in the orchestra, regardless of where they came from or who they were, understood again yeah. what it meant to be a minority and also understood what it meant to sit down with other musicians and play together in harmony and unison. And so these very, very important aspects of being a musician bound us together more than the tensions that could pull us apart. And how do these kids, you said uh, they auditioned through YouTube, how do they know how to play since this is, it's, it's not an Iraqi thing to play classical music, is it? Um, Or maybe it is, I don't know. That's a, that's a very good and complicated question again. Um, first of all, they, are, they were all and they continue to be all Iraqis living in Iraq. Mm-hmm. This was a rule that we had yeah. because we were trying to serve the people who really needed it most. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I've mentioned the Kurdish String Orchestra and the String Tradition in Suleimania, um, there is also the Iraqi National Symphony Orchestra in Baghdad. Now, this was founded in 1958. This was the very first professional symphony orchestra in the Middle East. There was also, in 1959, the foundation of the Baghdad School of Music and Ballet. Mm -hmm. And one asks oneself, where did they get the teachers for that? And the answer, particularly in the 90s and 80s, was Soviet Russia. Ah, okay, yeah. 
Um, because uh, Saddam, you know, during that whole period of time, Saddam was sometimes the best friend of the Americans and sometimes the best friend of the Russians. Yeah. Um, so he was playing whatever games he wanted to play to suit himself. But it did mean that there was a tradition of classical Russian music being taught in Iraq um, during the last decades of last century. Okay. So there was a teaching tradition. There was a sense of quality. Um, and all of that went down the drain when, of course, the 2000, 2003 war began because most of those teachers fled for their lives. Yeah. So, okay, so these people were able, they, they actually, they knew how to play and they and, and then out of those people, you pick the best and you put your orchestra together. Um, I was also thinking in, in preparing and thinking about what you've done, I've also seen a couple of videos, uh, by the way, you have a very nice TED talk, a TED Cologne talk that you can find on on YouTube uh, and other sources. I think it's on your LinkedIn profile as well. Yeah. well. We'll mention those, by the way, as well in the show notes that you can find back on the culturematters.com website. Um, what? How did the parents react to these children wanting to go to well to Kurdistan or the, the Kurd area? And because they were not from there, they were because the parent, these parents might have a stronger conviction. Like, no, you're not going to do this. This is this. You don't do this. We don't mix. That's a very good point. And there were a great many people in Iraq who, once they'd heard about the orchestra, disagreed with it as a, as a thing to exist as, at as all. As a concept, yeah. Yeah. I think, basically, um, there was so little support for these young people uh -huh. that the very fact that they were playing music at all, which meant usually playing to themselves at home during the war because it was very often too dangerous to leave home, um, meant that they had supportive families. Okay. I think we in the West do not credit how important family is in the Middle East. It's it's huge. As in the social security network, if you want. That's what Absolutely. you're referring to. It's, yeah. it's an extended family. It is, as you say, the social security network. And very much it's the mafia. It's about maintaining power. Mm -hmm. It's about building power. And it's about uh, working in an ultra-corrupt society yeah. where um, family connections and nepotism and so on and so forth are the norm. They are the business practice. They are yeah. not an extra layer on top of business. They are the culture. So family is a hugely important thing. And the very fact that these players were playing at all meant that they had supportive families who allowed them to do this. Yeah. So um, going to... Outside of the boundaries of the norm, that is. Exactly. Yeah. And again, this was about um, perhaps these families... Uh, where the parents were also classical musicians who had a job yep. in the Iraqi National Symphony Orchestra, or perhaps they just loved music. Several of our players yep. in the Kurdistan region had parents who uh, had very little educational background, but were very musical inherently and could play a traditional instrument, could teach traditional Kurdish songs, pass the oral tradition onto their children. And from that, these children self-selected themselves as classical musicians because they fell in love with what they saw on YouTube, what they saw on television and radio, which was their only access to live classical music. Yeah, it's. I'm. I'm just thinking how, because this you you talk about this, and we're we're what is it, 26 minutes or something in the interview, or 25 or something. Mm. You talk about this like this is you wrap you wrap this up in 25 minutes, but this has taken years to put together. Um, the orchestra itself uh, was a became more and more behemothic, more complex. Yeah. As we went along, and there were a number of problematic reasons for that, mainly political. Yeah. We were being driven by geopolitical strife 
all the time. Um, and this meant that uh, everything that a normal youth orchestra would do, we had to do abnormally. There were lots of workarounds. Um, for example, uh, in the first two summer courses in 2009 and 10, we had support from the Kurdistan regional government, from one politician in particular, the prime minister of that region, Dr. Baram Sali. That helps, yeah. Now, at that time, it was the Kurdistan region's uh, policy to support the whole of Iraq because Iraq was coming out of a war. And the Kurdistan region had maintained relative peace and quiet and stability. Mm -hmm. So it was, in some sense, stronger. Um, but after 2010, that policy stopped because the strife between the federal Baghdad government and the regional Erbil government of the Kurds uh, had begun to accelerate, to mount. And the Kurds basically said, well, we've given up on Baghdad. They don't want to work with us. They don't want our help. So we're basically going to ignore them or just try to sell the oil ourselves, mm -hmm. which was the central issue, of course. Um, and that meant that I was forced already in 2009, because I saw this coming, um, to plan to get the orchestra out of Iraq because... Uh, let, let me summarize it in one sentence. Yeah. Because we were operating in the Kurdistan region and because Kurds were playing in the orchestra, the Baghdad federal government would not support us. Yep. Because we were the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq, with that word Iraq in the title, the Kurdistan regional government stopped supporting us. Yep. So it was a lose-lose situation. The only sustainable thing I could do was to bring the orchestra entirely out of Iraq and take it to, in the first instance... Beethoven Fest in Bonn in 2011, mm -hmm. in the second instance, the Edinburgh Festival yeah. in 2012, and in the third instance, the uh, Aix-en-Provence Cultural Capital of Europe uh -huh. in 2013. And there, there were many benefits to taking the orchestra abroad and becoming this amazing cultural diplomat, but it made the whole logistical and political and musical uh, organizational side much more expensive and much more complex. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm just thinking about how these kids, they have to leave their country. They might not ever have left their country. Um, and maybe, did some of them stay? Um, we had one runaway. We okay. confessed to that. Yeah. Um, and Marwan was our first clarinet who went to Beethoven Fest with us. Um, and he disappeared basically directly after the course, after he'd gotten his passport back from us. Yeah. And it, it was kind of dumb of him because I don't think he had a plan. Um, he obviously had his Kurdish connections and we believe he's in Sweden right now. Um, but he was daft enough to post his progress through Europe on Facebook. <laughs> and we were watching him just, you know, moving further and further north, wearing warmer and warmer clothes. That's so typical. Standing next to his Kurdish pals in Amsterdam or Malmo or wherever it was. Uh, whilst being an illegal alien in Europe. So it's, it's so, uh, uh, yeah, endearing almost. It was quaint. It was cute. Yeah. And, um, it's not the first time that this has happened. Uh, but in terms of what the orchestra actually did, he was the only one we lost, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Everybody else went back, um, after Germany, after Britain, after France, because the message that we were delivering in those summer courses was very strong. We're giving you this for free. There were no application fees at all. Yeah. Everything was paid for. But once they'd had this experience abroad, they had to go back to Iraq and rebuild their culture and with that experience. Yeah. That was the whole point. This wasn't about 
a two or three week summer course. No. Although that was the cherry on the top. Yeah. It was about rebuilding Iraqi culture. Makes good sense. So I, I get from your words that this ended in 2013, in 2013? Yes, our last summer course was 2013. Yeah. We made a brave and very, very uh, concerted attempt to get the orchestra to America in 2014. Yeah. We had brilliant partners. Uh, but without giving too much away in the book, because I think this is where the story gets extremely dark. Yeah. Um, ISIL had, was, had already invaded the country. And shortly before we were to step on the plane, um, they took over Mosul and invaded that where one of our players was living. Yeah. Uh, and they were surrounding Kirkuk where another of our players was living. And basically the internal logistics that we had set up within Iraq broke down. And completely brought the whole thing to a halt, uh, the whole project to go to America. And after that point, which was our sixth year of operation, um, where I had been doing most of the work myself because they were so limited in their capacity in Iraq, um, I personally had no more energy left. Yeah. I was finished. Yeah. Um, and so last year, 2015, was really for me the year of the book, the year to, for me, it was therapeutic. It was cathartic to get the whole thing down on paper, to reflect upon what I'd done yeah. and to reflect upon what we'd achieved and what we'd most importantly of all learned. Yes. So that, that you actually created ni your nice own segue into towards the topic of the book that uh, I yeah. wanted to talk to you about as well. This book is not published yet, is it? No, it's coming out on the 18th of August um, this year in 2016, and it's published by Sandstone Press, which is in the Highlands of Scotland. It suits me very well that I'm here in Inverness because my publisher is only half an hour in the train away from me. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've had some very, very good discussions about how to develop the book and the marketing and so on and so forth. And we're recording this just for the sake of, if you're listen, listening to this in the future, we're recording this in February 2016. So the book comes out in August 2016. Yeah. Um, just can you, you sort of mentioned in, in two or three words what it's, what it's all about. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, it, it, the name of the book is Upbeat, the yeah. story of the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq. And it's basically my testimony from the, my position as music director mm -hmm. over those six years of what we did, how we did it, and uh, what the results were. Um, and then there are three chapters at the very end, which I think were very important for my learning process. Uh, I reflected upon the social entrepreneurship aspect of yeah. the project uh -huh. um, because I saw it as a social entrepreneurship project. And secondly, I reflected on the reconciliation aspect of it. As you know, there's a great deal of research done into how to reconcile people in global conflict situations. Uh -huh. um, and so I apply a lot of that research to the National Youth Orchestra of Iraq in retrospect to see what we've done and how we fitted with best practice and what we did differently. Um, and thirdly and finally, uh, I, I close the book with the chapter, Who Are the Iraqis? Because it answers the very, very first question I had when I was reading that article back in 2008 in Edinburgh. Yeah. We'd, we'd all been bombarded during that time with years of atrocious reporting about dreadful uh, and violent Uh, acts of war in Iraq uh -huh. and prior to that the conflicts of Saddam Hussein and the oil for food program, the first Gulf War, all we'd ever heard through the media was about war and violence and negativity about Iraq. <coughs> It immediately stimulated me in the question, the cultural question, yeah. 
who are the Iraqis? Because we had this over-reported country about which we knew absolutely nothing. Only that it's only bad news. Yeah. Only bad news and yeah. only news about the geopolitical conflicts and the wars and so on. It told us nothing about who normal Iraqis are. Yeah. And so I close the book with that chapter, uh, which attempts in my head for me to answer the question after having worked with Iraqis, what's the situation they're in? What is the future they ha- they have? Who are these people culturally? Yeah. yeah. It's uh, the book is called Upbeat and it'll be published in August 2016 written by Paul here it comes Paul McAlinden. Did I get that right? Yeah, beautiful Chris. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think you've learned quite a lot throughout this whole process of doing this. I think it's an amazing story and it's it's usually I I, I tend to sort of wrap um the the podcast up around 30 minutes or something. We're running over that, which is perfectly mm-hmm. fine. I was yeah. just curious if if there is an American uh, billionaire or, say, Richard Branson or something like that, who says, Paul, if I give you a couple of uh, euros or dollars or something and bring this, bring these kids to the United States, would you still do this? Um, you want to think about I, this and come back to me? Uh, no, it, it, the, the answer is, of course, I would. Yeah. Uh, the but is visas. Already... Mm-hmm. In that window between 2009 and 14, which was the so-called peaceable time in Iraq, it's now back on its knees with the war against ISIL. Uh, Iraqis had the least popular passport in the world. And now, if that's even possible, it is even less popular because the ISIL situation makes a potential terrorist out of every Iraqi. And so with all the money in the world... If we can't physically get the orchestra into Iraq, there's no point. Yeah. And so that requires, as it did for our British and French and German uh, ventures, it requires a lot of money. Yeah. Um, we estimated a good half a million dollars. Um, and it requires political will, not from civil servants, but absolutely from the very top, yeah. from the Secretary of State. Um, if that political will to bring the orchestra across is not there, then nothing will happen. That's it, right? That it's it's all political will, and that's where it where it either it fails or it's it stands. It, it totally. succeeds. Yes, very absolutely. Yeah. As as I said before, it, it, we were basically a very complex political football. We were the, easily the best cultural diplomats that Iraqi had had in Iraq had had in five thousand years. Yeah. Um, but uh, the hoops that we had to jump through, and our very excellent partners like. Beethoven Fest, the British Council and so on, had to jump through to get people to trust us uh, were considerable. And with the situation with ISIL right now, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how people would read us. Yes. Yeah, that's true. It's a a sad, sickening situation there. Yeah. Uh, And usually I don't make these kind of judgment comments here, but with this, any sane person cannot come to another conclusion. Anyways, let's not talk about politics. We're talking about culture here. Yeah. Um, I would like to wrap this up, uh, and I usually, I always do this with the same question, and I ask every um, person that I interview on the Culture Matters podcast is, can you give us, Paul, three tips to become more culturally competent from your own experience? Oh, heavens, I think it boils down to tip number one, Yes. know yourself culturally. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure everybody else has said that, but it's crucial that you can't really see Uh, clearly another culture or analyze it properly if you haven't had a good hard look at yourself first. 
Uh, and very often I find that the people who are very sure of themselves culturally and who might come across, for example, as very conservatively and traditionally German, because they're so confident in themselves, they have very little problem relating to and understanding other cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's to do with self-confidence in oneself as a cultural being uh, in order to be able to say, well, I'm different to that person, I may disagree with that person, but I can see where we can agree and work together. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't all have to be a happy, um, you know, Pollyanna version of getting along together. There can be conflict, there can be differences, and there, there is, can be disagreements, yeah. and you can still work together. Yeah. Um, the second point I would think is to learn a second or third language. Okay. Language is the most powerful part of culture. And me as a Brit, I went to Germany partly to learn German. I had no second language in Britain. And we Brits, and particularly the Americans too, we're terrible at second languages. True. Yeah, but you can't help that. You can't blame that for, you can't blame you guys either for that. That's Well, yes and no. I think there's a growing concern amongst some of the cultural actors in Britain, like the British Council, that the British feel that because they speak English, Everybody in the world understands them, whereas English being a global language has completely different cultural and thought processes behind the language and the word, uh, depending on where that person comes from. And we Brits tend to forget that when we use the word breakfast or the word contract, um, these words can be spoken and understood by other people, but mean completely different things. Yeah, that's that's business English. That's not that's not British English or American English or Canadian English. That's international business exactly. communication. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the third factor, I think, is for goodness' sake, learn to laugh at yourself. <laughs> Uh, because if you go into, into an intercultural situation, particularly one as extreme as Iraq was for me, then if you don't have a sense of humor, you're going to drag yourself down and everybody else with you pretty fast. You've got to learn to be able to laugh at yourself. Yeah, yeah, makes good sense. Typically for a Brit, which self-deprecating humor is a typical British um, humor trait as well, I think. Oh, and the Scots are the worst of that. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> We're so self-deprecating. We, we can't even see each other down the hole we've created. <laughs> okay, that's so funny. Um, Paul, how can people get in touch with you if they want to? Where can they find you? Well, my LinkedIn profile is is clear, Paul McAlinden. Yeah. Um, I also have my email address, which is my second name, McAlinden, at hotmail.com. Um, and... Uh, I also have my conductor profile on Facebook and my Twitter profile, Paul McAlinden. The, uh, the book's Twitter profile is upbeat underco- underscore book. And the uh, Facebook uh, book profile is upbeat dot book. So people will find me somewhere or another. And yeah, very you have a pretty unique name as well. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you very much for taking the time uh, up all the way in the, in Scotland, close to Inverness. All the best with the the final touch-up of the books, which in the coming weeks, I guess, you will do, and then up to the publication. Yeah. And uh, it was really, really nice talking to you, and I'm, I'm very happy you connected, and we actually got to do this interview. I think it's a, it's a, it's a very good addition to all the other podcasts here, and it's a total new view, again, on, um, on how, how culture plays a role pretty much everywhere, and how I still am convinced that simply culture matters. Paul, I'm um, I th- I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future again. I'm sure we will too. Okay, take care then. Cheers. You take care. Bye bye. Bye.
Thanks again, Paul. I'm, I can't thank you enough for connecting because I think this is a really um, fascinating story. And, and again, as I said in the interview as well, this how culture matters on, on every aspect um, of life. And that excites me so much about doing this podcast and having you as an audience, uh, of course, as well. That's the reason um, for doing this all. Well, if you like what I do with this podcast, then I'd really appreciate if you could give me a... Uh, uh, like you can do that on facebook as well by the way i recently started or restarted facebook uh, just um, go to facebook find culture matters and you'll see my uh, my picture somewhere if you want to use the direct url go to facebook.com slash culture matters hq it's in headquarters culture matters was taken so it had to be culture matters hq in facebook um so that's pretty much it. The uh, iTunes uh, likes and reviews are always very much appreciated, of course, as well. So do connect with me on um, uh, on Facebook nowadays as well. Twitter, you can use that as well. And that'll all be in the um, on the website, culturematters.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back in two weeks' time with another interview. Bye. That's it for this episode. The Culture Matters Podcast, helping you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences.